This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Creative Curve, How to Develop the Right Idea at the Right Time by Alan Gannett. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel or my website for downloads. Chapter 4. What is Talent? Name as many uncommon uses for a hairdryer as you can. I'll give you a couple seconds. Did you come up with half a dozen? More than that? Maybe you thought of blowing dust off of surfaces, or maybe you had a grandparent who taught you that a hairdryer could make cake frosting look glossy. This type of question is what researchers call a divergent thinking test. According to academics, divergent thinking, where the goal is to come up with numerous solutions to problems, is correlated with creativity. The more divergent you're thinking, the more creative you are. By looking at the number and originality of your responses, they believe that they can accurately assess a person's creative potential. Researchers in Austria wanted to further understand the relationship between intelligence and creativity. Did you need a high IQ in order to have creative talent? If so, how high? To investigate, they recruited 297 people to participate in a study. Some were recruited from a university's student population, while others were recruited from the surrounding community. First, the researchers assessed the IQ of each participant. Then they had them answer six divergent thinking questions to measure their creative potential. Finally, they had a trained panel evaluate the originality of each answer on a scale of one, not original, to four, very original. What did the results say? Well, there are multiple ways to measure creative potential. One is to look at how many ideas people come up with. What the researchers found was that IQ and the quantity of ideas that people came up with were strongly correlated, but only up to an IQ of 86, below the average of 100. Beyond an IQ of 86, the relationship broke down, meaning that someone with an IQ of 90, just below average, could have just as many good ideas as someone with an IQ of 150, a certified genius. This is what scientists call the threshold theory, the idea that above a certain IQ threshold, every person on Earth has the same creative potential. An IQ threshold of 86 means that roughly the top 80% of the population, in terms of IQ score, has the same creative potential. That is a substantial group. But what if creativity isn't just the number of ideas that one comes up with? The researchers also looked at a more rigorous definition of creative potential, the quality of the ideas that individuals came up with. When they looked at quality, they again found that an IQ correlation, yet again, only up to a point. This time, the correlation stopped at those people with an IQ of 104. This means that anyone with an IQ over 104 has the same potential to come up with original ideas as someone who falls in the genius IQ range. That, too, is a large group, 40% of the population. If you're reading a nonfiction book, like the one in, your, in my hands right now, chances are that you fall into that group. Worldwide, that is roughly 3 billion people. Again, that's a huge number of people who share the same creative potential as the genius elite that many idolize. How can you release that potential? 13 Years of Paint do you have to be born with precocious talent to be a great artist? Or can you become one through practice and hard work? More generally, is artistic talent innate? This is a key question in the study of creativity. 
One seemingly normal man, Jonathan Hardesty, decided to find out. Hardesty reminds me of the chatty uncle who speaks to everyone at the family reunion. He is bubbly and talkative, with a bronze beard and matching glasses that I respect that I suspect are relics of a bygone decade. A familiar face that you'd see at a restaurant or say hello to in a bookstore. What he doesn't look like is a classical painter. However, Hardesty's works can fetch five figures. He is not only one of today's most talented fine artists, but also a prolific instructor who teaches virtually all over the world. His studio, which I saw through the lens of a webcam we used for our video call, is what can best be described as a large shed in his yard. Paintings hang from the walls and lean on every piece of furniture. Hardesty uses the space not only to paint, but to teach through online courses. Hardesty didn't always want to be a painter. Other than going through a brief artistic phase at the age of eight, he did not pick up a pencil or brush to draw seriously until after college. In 2002, having recently graduated and gotten married, Hardesty was working as an assistant at the fundraising office for a university medical center, filing papers, helping with donor research, and doing grunt work. To hear him describe it, it was a cliche of a bureaucratic office environment, saying, quote, I'd walk in and look around, and people would be scrambling to get the last sun-dried tomato bagel from the conference room, end quote. His boss was dismissive and disinterested in him. Hardesty spent countless days filing and organizing papers, only to have to file yet more papers the same day or the next day. Eventually, to keep himself sane, he decided to pour himself into his work. If he had to be an assistant, he could at least strive to be the best possible one. To that end, he tried to figure out if the university he worked for could improve its office procedures. By digitizing his filing process, he could potentially have a huge time savings opportunity. By taking that on, he could make his life easier and save the university money. But his boss immediately shut him down. The fundraising office was not looking for that kind of digital transformation. Looking around the office, Hardesty realized that all his coworkers were miserable. Everyone seemed to loathe their work. At that point, he decided to make a change, saying, I felt like my soul was dying. He decided to be intentional about his life. He would research the, the perfect job. But what would make him truly happy? He ignored his filing duties and spent the rest of the day scribbling down ideas in a notepad. Hardesty knew he had to dedicate himself to his next job. His bad habit of bouncing between interests was wearing him. One month he wanted to be a geologist and emptied the library of his geology books. The next month he dropped geology and was committed to getting a pilot's license. For a while, he dreamed of being a musician. Envisioning himself a future rock star, he joined a local Pearl Jam wannabe band. His grunge rock band developed a small measure of fame, but the life of a touring musician was a recipe for boredom. He said, quote, I didn't like it. It was very monotonous, and it was three or four nights a week of the exact same thing, end quote. He brainstormed four different or different career options. What jobs would allow him to be at home near his wife and someday children? And could he avoid an office environment? He wanted a creative work culture, not one that reminded him of a random DMV. Hardesty hashed through various options and found a career that fit the bill, a painter. Artists practiced their trade from their homes or their studios, then shipped their work to galleries where it was sold. 
As a fine artist, he would be near his wife and future children, far away from pale gray office ceiling tiles. It was perfect. The only problem was that the last time he had tried painting was back when he was eight. Nor had he grown up in a family where art was emphasized or valued. Nevertheless, that night he made a pact with himself. He would draw or paint every day until he became a great painter. Hardesty's first drawing was a self-portrait. He was proud when the work was completed, but also horrified. The character looked more like the fictional oddball Napoleon Dynamite than it did Hardesty. Yet while the self-portrait was mediocre, he had fun creating it. To get honest feedback, he started a thread on conceptart.org, a message board for artists. The post was titled, Journey of an Absolute Rookie, Paintings and Sketches. And in it, he wrote, quote, I am starting from rock bottom, and I am going to paint at least one painting and do at least one sketch every day, probably two on the weekends. The order you see them in is the order that I am painting or sketching them. Every day, starting on September 15th of 2002, I am bearing my soul to everyone. I will post everything I do, whether it is awful or not. Hardesty hoped that he would gather helpful feedback. For those interested in creativity, however, his postings are, all, are also an extraordinary record of one person's attempt to learn a new skill. For the next 13 years, he posted continuously on his thread, updating his followers with the progress and uploading his latest paintings. Below, you can see one of his very first paintings from 2002, alongside a painting from five years later. Needless to say, Hardesty has improved tremendously over the years. But how? Lots of people paint as a hobby, even for decades, but few reach his level of skill and accomplishment. Becoming an expert. How do you learn to master a new skill? Most people would say practice, practice, practice. You may have even heard the, as we'll discuss, faulty notion of the 10,000-hour rule. However, neither of these ideas gives us a satisfactory answer. Many people practice a skill for, long, for a long time, but come nowhere near the level of world-class expertise. Think about driving. Most of us have spent thousands of hours behind the wheel, yet few, if any of us, are professional NASCAR drivers. In fact, studies show that years of experience often bear little relationship with skill. One study looked at experienced stock pickers and found that, on average, they were no better at investing than novices. Another study found that experienced therapists do not have better patient outcomes than new therapists. It turns out that it is not simply years one spends on doing, that is, experience, that is tied to success. There is something else at work. Researchers who study expertise decided to look at the problem in a different way. What if you compared high performers to lower performers in a specific skill? What differences might you find in how the two groups trained and learned? One researcher compared elite sprinters to merely decent sprinters. They found that there was not only a physical difference between the two, but also a mental one. Elite sprinters focus on monitoring their internal states more closely and focus more on planning their race performance during competition than less accomplished runners. Another study evaluated elite chess players and reached a similar conclusion. Expert players have more advanced mental patterns of critical chess positions, allowing them to play better than average players. These patterns are what psychologists call mental models, your brain's representations of concepts or situations. For example, your concept of what a negotiation is like, two sides going back and forth trying to find a solution, would be a mental model. 
Researchers found the importance of mental models across all types of skills. Additional studies have found similar patterns of enhanced mental models in medical professionals, computer programmers, and video game players. So, how do you learn these mental models if it is not simple experience? This is where many people fall back on a comfortable answer. Talent. They'll tell you that some people are born with certain skills. It is nature, not nurture. Rather than try, they kick back and decide to watch America's Got Talent, believing that the eight-year-old who can breathe fire simply was born with it. To explore the talent questions, researchers decided to see if they could train normal people to accomplish superhuman things. For example, think of a long string of digits. You try to memorize as many as you can. When you think you've memorized as many as you can, look away from the digits and try to recall them. The sequence in this book had 80 digits, and how many does a typical person remember? Four? Maybe ten? I usually get about six. Researchers found that the typical college student remembers about seven. If you got more than that, give yourself a pat on the back. Here's where researchers found something surprising, even seemingly impossible. If they trained average college students using well-known memorization techniques, the students were ultimately able to surpass 80 digits. The study has been repeated multiple times. One researcher summarized the study of these memorization skills by saying, quote, recent reviews have not found any scientifically verified evidence that would limit motivated healthy adults with appropriate instruction and training from acquiring exceptional levels of performance for specific types of memory tasks. It wasn't hereditary talent that dramatically improved the memory skills of the students. It also wasn't 10,000 hours of practice, an often repeated but incorrect number that we will discuss later. No, it was the way in which they were trained. One study that looked at highly skilled artists found that a roughly half were child prodigies, while the other half had undistinguished childhoods and were not recognized as exceptional until early adulthood. Perhaps we don't have to be geniuses to excel in creative fields. We just have to train like them. South Dakota, an artist's paradise. Jonathan Hardesty's path to becoming a master painter took him to an unconventional place, South Dakota. Hardesty was getting lots of online encouragement. Someone with the username Gekitsu, who possessed excellent grammar, said, quote, I feel he won't stop practicing until he owns us all. I wish I had that energy, end quote. For his part, Hardesty was drawing or painting every day, and though he initially made quick strides, Hardesty's progress stalled. Self-doubt started to creep into his forum posts. In May of 2003, he posted online, quote, I am so frustrated at my lack of ability. I feel like quitting. Don't worry, I won't, but I definitely feel like it tonight. I can't visualize anything in 3D. I can't control a pencil or a pen. Blech, I'm going to bed, end quote. He needed a new way to learn, but how? Online, he stumbled across a training movement called the Atelier Movement. This training has origins in the pre-Renaissance era, where artists were viewed as craftsmen and learned their art in workshops. In that time, master painters took on a handful of apprentices in their studios who were trained to replicate the master's work. This model became less dominant during the Italian Renaissance, as wealthy patrons began funding individual artists and elite academies. However, in the 1800s, a French artist named Jean-Léon Jérôme brought back the workshop, or atelier in French, model and started training students in his studio. 
He taught numerous painters, many of whom went on to have successful careers. The modern version of Atelier involves four years of full-time study. Throughout, students spend hours each day drawing hyper-realistic sketches of sculptures, a set of classic drawings, called Varg drawings, and live models. Eventually, they add in black and white paint. Only in their final year do they start practicing the essentials of colors. After four years, students will have spent thousands of hours slowly perfecting the fundamentals of painting. The more Hardesty read about this model, the more interested he became. He was convinced that this program would teach him the essentials of great painting. He buzzed around the web, reading all he could on the various ateliers in the United States. Finally, he found one that seemed ideal. It had a respected teacher and an open spot. There was one problem. It was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. He asked his wife if she would be willing to move there. She said yes, but her family was skeptical. They were worried that their son-in-law was going on a wild goose chase. They weren't the only ones either. A contingent of posters on his thread thought it was a scam and warned him to stay away. Nonetheless, Hardesty packed up his life and he and his wife drove to South Dakota. His initial excitement soon faded in the face of the harsh realities of life as an unpaid artist in South Dakota. He got a job at Breadsmith, a local bakery, where he worked for eight hours every morning, starting at 5 a.m. After work each day, he went to the atelier, painted until 9 p.m., slept, and repeated it all the next day. They weren't just short on time, they were also short on money. Sometimes when bills came in, Hardesty and his wife would face a, ca uh, would face a cash crunch. Hardesty remembers one time when they only had a few dollars left. They were at a local grocery store shopping for the cheapest food possible. Sick of cheap carbs, they were in search of something with protein. Scurrying around the supermarket, they stumbled upon a bag of lentils. Full of protein, it was also inexpensive, 39 cents a bag, the, the perfect food for a struggling couple. For the next three weeks, they survived on lentils and bread until they saved some money. Hardesty, having consumed a lifetime's worth of lentils, won't touch them to this day. Nevertheless, this scrappy time in South Dakota was what crystallized his transformation. What was it about this, changing, this training regime that, hardened, that, or that changed Hardesty? Being purposeful. You might have heard of the 10,000-hour rule. Malcolm Gladwell coined it in his 2008 best-selling book, Outliers. Since the book's publication, the idea that with 10,000 hours of practice anyone can become an expert has become a mantra in business and self-improvement circles. According to Google, now over 140,000 websites reference the phrase. The rule comes from research by K. Anders Ericsson, a Swedish-born professor at Florida State University, who is a grandfather of the research on developing school. However, according to Ericsson, there is a problem. The rule is not strictly accurate, or, as, as he put it to me, Gladwell misread the paper. There are two main flaws with the 10,000-hour rule. First, it neglects to mention that it's not simply how many hours you spend that's important, but how you spend those hours. As I mentioned earlier, highly experienced therapists and stock pickers don't necessarily get better results than novices. The reason why is that most people, once they achieve an adequate degree of skill, stop trying to consciously improve. Think about driving. On your commute, you are not trying to get better at turning or accelerating. You are comfortable with your current level of skill. When you first started driving a car, you were, I hope, aware of every aspect of handling a car, 
how to turn properly, how to slow down and not rear-end the vehicle in front of you, how to parallel park, a maneuver I still avoid. As you worked on these skills, you slowly got better and better, probably without realizing it. However, over time, these skills became ingrained and subconscious. Driving became an automatic activity. The result is that as you continued driving for thousands of hours, you did not go on to learn more advanced skills. If you believe the 10,000-hour rule, every person with a driver's license should eventually develop the skills of a race car driver. My guess is, however, that although you've probably spent 10,000 hours driving, you're still a typical driver. Erickson explains why, saying, quote, Automaticity is the enemy of growing your expertise. If you end up automating things, then you lose that ability to actually control what you're doing, end quote. If you can't control it, then you can't improve it. Instead of simply practicing a task over and over again for 10,000 hours, Erickson's research shows you have to engage extensively in purposeful practice. This is a particular type of practice where you work on one small skill repeatedly with a clear goal and a feedback mechanism. Think about practicing your parallel parking with a driving instructor. Usually, the feedback comes from a teacher or experienced mentor. As you master the small skills, you advance to more difficult ones. Erickson carried out a study where he examined expert violinists to demonstrate the power of purposeful practice. What he found was that all the violinists spent roughly the same amount of time practicing per week, but the best violinists spent more than of those hours engaged in purposeful practice. 10,000 hours alone did not lead to better performance. Erickson gave me an example of how the violin students would engage in this more effective practice. A teacher would listen to a student's performance and pick out flaws. Maybe they were playing too quickly. Maybe they were too slow. The teacher would then assign exercises that specifically focused on playing tempos correctly. The student would practice these exercises over and over again, and only once the teacher agreed that they had mastered them would they move on to more difficult skills. This approach doesn't just work for music. Research found similar results among chess players. The number of hours of purposeful practice was the best predictor of chess skill, not the number of games played. Non-purposeful practice, which is practicing things you already know how to do, just reinforces mental processes that are already established. Purposeful practice allows the student to gain new mental methods and thereby improve their abilities. The second serious flaw with the 10,000-hour rule is that Erickson's study did not find that 10,000 hours of even purposeful practice would make you an expert. Instead, it found that 10,000 hours of purposeful practice was the average of the experts he studied. Some achieved it in significantly fewer hours. Others achieved it with more. As Erickson explained it to me, quote, the idea that the body or the cells in your body would keep track of how many hours of practice you engaged in and that there's a magical clock at 10,000 hours that changes things is a curious belief, end quote. Instead, Erickson believes that the number of hours someone needs to master a task is different for different people and for different tasks. For example, to master skills that have fewer people pursuing them, becoming an expert should require less time. Remember the digit memorization study? Unlike the violin or chess, there are far fewer people trying to become world-class digit memorizers. So when researchers trained people, Erickson told me, quote, they were able to basically become the best in the world in about 400 hours, end quote. That is only 4% of the 10,000-hour rule. When Erickson studied for 
for study digit memorization, you could have become the world champion, memorizing more than 80 digits in a year's worth of weekend practice. Things change, and the current record for digit span requires that you memorize over 450 digits, a feat that would take considerably longer to achieve. On the other hand, in some popular fields, it can take much more than 10,000 hours. Erickson explained to me that when you look at people who win international piano competitions, they typically spend around 25,000 hours before attaining that level of performance. In short, mastering a skill takes many, many hours of purposeful practice, and the specific number of hours varies. Unfortunately, the phenomenon of mastering a skill is hard to study since most experts do not bother to keep records of their practice regimen. Without knowing it, Jonathan Hardesty had stumbled onto becoming one of the few documented public examples of someone engaging in extensive purposeful practice. In an atelier, students spend roughly 6,000 hours of purposeful practice over a four-year period. Overall, Hardesty estimates that between his formal and informal training, he has put in well over 25,000 hours of purposeful practice. Consequently, he has gone from drawing self-portraits that look like Napoleon Dynamite to creating paintings that would make any art student drip with envy. Hardesty continues this form of purposeful practice to this day. Even now, he is a master painter. As a master painter, he is still trying to improve. He explained, I still have lots of flaws in my work. I'm working just as hard as when I was first learning. He is currently working on brush efficiency, where a painter works to create an effect with as few strokes as possible by carefully controlling the pressure of the brush on the canvas. To improve on this aspect of his work, Hardesty developed a method of purposeful practice. He explained, quote, At the end of each session when I have leftover paint, I'll do a stroke on a scrap piece of canvas. Then I'll try to duplicate that stroke exactly. I'll try to duplicate the randomness of that stroke. That requires the right amount of paint, the right pressure application. It's like a doctor with surgery. Today, Hardesty has launched his own online atelier called Classical Art Online to offer this method of teaching to people who can't afford to move to South Dakota for four years or who really don't want to. He is also applying his love of learning to a new skill. Hardesty now spends his free time in a different kind of studio, a jujitsu gym. In fact, Hardesty has become a lover of the learning process, saying, quote, it's really fun to be on the bottom of the totem pole again in something, quote, or end quote. His new goal, to compete in an MMA fight before his knees give out. Once again, he has some doubters. As Hardesty tells me with a smile, quote, my wife still laughs. She's like, you're not fighting. And I'm like, okay, love, end quote. As we wrap up our interview, he mentions that he's going to be competing in his first intramural fight. I have no doubt he'll be in the MMA ring soon enough. Made of plastic. The question remains, why does purposeful practice work? To answer this, I went to a surprising source, taxi drivers. Saul was a London cabbie. He drove one of those famous black taxis with hunchbacked roofs. This was pre-Uber. He spent his days driving the streets of London, taking customers to their desired destinations. Some destinations were requested over and over, such as the airport, while others were places he'd never been before, such as an obscure neighborhood where a customer's mother lived. As a result, Saul, like most London cab drivers, developed a keen ability to navigate. 
One day, Saul saw a newspaper advertisement inviting taxi drivers to participate in a neurological research study, so he called the phone number. Soon, Saul was in the offices of researchers at University College London. They were planning to scan the brains of taxi drivers to see whether years of driving a cab might cause measurable changes in a driver's brain. Along with 18 other London taxi drivers, Saul agreed to participate in the study and was put through a battery of tests. He answered questions about his beliefs, values, and personal history. An MRI machine allows the researchers to observe the structure of someone's brain. When the researchers conducted MRI scans of the taxi driver's brains, they found something unexpected. The rear hippocampus of their brain tended to be enlarged. This is the area of the brain that is critical for understanding where we are spatially and how to navigate. It is activated, for example, when we use landmarks such as a large tree or a memorial to figure out how to get home. In short, the taxi driver's brains were structured to make it easier for them to get around London. That leads to the obvious question. Was Saul's brain naturally organized that way, thereby influencing his decision to join the taxi driver profession? Or did being a taxi driver somehow alter Saul's brain structure? To answer this, the researchers compared the brains of taxi drivers to those of another group of professionals who spent their day driving around London, bus drivers. What they found, when controlling for other variables, was that bus drivers did not show the same increase in the size of the hippocampus. Why? Because bus drivers follow the same route day after day, whereas taxi drivers are regularly tasked with making their way to different, and sometimes unfamiliar, destinations. To put it simply, taxi drivers engage in a form of purposeful practice related to navigation. Customers give them instructions, and they have to figure out how to get to this and that destination before having the GPS, and then they receive either positive or negative feedback depending on, well, on how well or poorly they did. Over time, it seems, this purposeful practice actually changes the structure of taxi drivers' brains. A second piece of evidence supported the same conclusion. Tests on taxi drivers with different numbers of years on the job revealed that the year hip rear hippocampus increased depending on how many years a cabbie had been driving. The more experience a cabbie had navigated the streets of London, the larger their hippocampus. Similar correlations have been found with other skills. Studies have shown that musicians, bilingual speakers, and even jugglers experience changes in their brain structure over time as they practice and learn more. This concept that our brain's physiology adapts to situations and experiences is known as brain plasticity. In fact, even short training experiences have been shown to affect brain structure. One study found that training sessions as simple as a short vocabulary lesson affect it. Another study found that 10 60-minute computer training sessions for elderly people had a measurable effect on brain performance that persisted 10 years later. How, though? To find out, I spoke to Joyce Schaefer, a scientist at the University of Washington and an expert in brain plasticity. She believes that an underlying mechanism is neurogenesis, the continuous generation of new brain cells. According to one study, both men and women create over 1,400 new brain cells every day. Once new brain cells are created, they take eight weeks to mature. During that time, they migrate to the most active areas of your brain. 
If you are a cabbie, constantly navigating London, these new brain cells join forces with the part of your brain that controls your navigation skills. As a result, your brain starts to adapt to the skills you are learning. As Schaefer describes it, you can influence the career choice of that brain cell. Furthermore, if you don't challenge these cells with new experiences, they risk dying off. Put another way, learning causes our brains to retain new brain cells. These new cells connect with the specific parts of your brain that are being activated. According to Schaefer, we totally underestimate how much we can modify our brains for improved chemistry, architecture, and performance. When researchers control for other variables, they often find that people who are experts in a particular field did not demonstrate any special abilities early on in their lives. Instead, one of two things happened. First, a child may have learned a skill from another activity. For example, if you taught your five-year-old son how to play softball, by the time he is seven, he will have more experience running, and a parent may easily mistake that as a natural talent for running track. Second, it is natural for most parents to tell a child that, if, that they are particularly good at something, even if the child is merely average. This leads to a positive feedback loop in which the child invests more time in practicing that skill, thereby garnering ever-increasing amounts of positive feedback. Over many years, that can compound into exceptional ability. Another study demonstrates that when you dig into their backgrounds, elite athletes and other expert performance performers had different developmental histories compared to their peers. The elite performers started early with supervised training and gained access to some of the best teachers in training environments. In short, research shows that exceptional talent is not always the result of winning the genetic lottery, but instead the outcome of immense amounts of structured, purposeful practice. While the notion of giftedness stems from Lewis Terman's popularization of IQ tests, research since then reveals that people of all backgrounds have more creative potential than they realize, and that IQ is not correlated with creative potential for people of average or higher intelligence. If science shows us that creative genius is a learned skill, and purposeful practice allows us to radically enhance our skills, can we engage in purposeful practice to become more creative? The answer is yes, but to understand how, it is important to understand first how a society decides that something is creative or that someone is a genius. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.